Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The more that you can recognize that, oh, I feel uncomfortable, and you can just sit with it a minute as opposed to react to it, there's always a feedback mechanism in that. That willingness to be in the discomfort a little bit longer, you're actually going to learn so much about yourself in that moment. And if you can act on that, that's what unlocks you to move forward. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the Engineering Leadership Community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we have a conversation with Wade Chambers, CTO and SVP of Engineering at Grand Rounds, about conscious career growth. Wade's been an engineering executive in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, working with some of the best leaders, executives, and engineers in the Valley. He's been the turnaround guy in multiple engineering orgs, transforming struggling teams to high performance across tons of different domains. He's managed thousands of people and helped generate billions of dollars in revenue. Wade's on a mission to unlock human potential through work. He's been a longtime friend of the community, speaking at several of our past events. I definitely recommend checking out his talks about imposter syndrome and the path to becoming a vice president of engineering over on our website. In part one, Wade discusses how to get unstuck and move your career forward. You'll hear about neuroplasticity and how to learn anything through conscious growth. Enjoy this episode with Wade Chambers. Wait, so excited to have you come to our show. You and I have been knowing for a few years. You spoke at our events multiple times, and every single one is very popular. I think this is a great opportunity for us to dive deeper into your story and also all the frameworks and approaches that other people can borrow from to help developing themselves and their teams. What makes you such a great leader? What's your story? What's the magic? I don't know that there's magic, so, so to speak. I think it is the constantly making mistakes and being vulnerable around that and not trying to be perfect, but also constantly wanting to be better and wanting to accomplish more and knowing that it's not me, it's the people that I work with and, and how we're able to focus on the same things, have a common way of getting there and then enjoying ourselves as we go through it. And I think the more that you invest in the people around you, like the more that people want to pay it back as well. So I, I love conversations like this and the presentations that we've done because it feels like as I've come up through the ranks, right? Like it's not like there's been an abundance of people that can help both give feedback as you go through it, as well as help you understand the underlying principles behind something. And as a result, it's kind of you learn by watching other people and go, 
wow, like that was really dumb. Like that, that was really shitty. I don't want to do that. Or, ooh, that was kind of smart. I want to do that. But it's kind of, you have to have those experiences and learn from them as opposed to, oh, if I could just understand this at a slightly elevated level, I could go through it a lot more effectively and efficiently. And so I, I think if you can approach the world that way and like try and pay it forward and help others out, people want to be around folks that will invest in them. One thing I have been repeatedly feel impressed when talking to you is how deep you think and how thoughtful you are about the approaches and methodologies you use and also the understanding of the human interaction, behaviors, and even anthropology, like understanding the history of a organization. When you just started as a manager, were you so conscious about those or how do you form a habit of digging deep? Because the amount of exposure you have in terms of experiences is limited and also random. But if you can go deep, then it's bigger chance you can learn something more profoundly. Yeah, just a little bit uh, of background around me, you know, came up in an extremely humble environment, no silver spoon for me or anything along those lines. And matter of fact, I didn't even go to college, right? Like I knew my parents weren't going to be able to afford it and therefore... I kind of needed to learn a lot on my own. And so early on, it was a, there's no assumption that I am God's gift to something. Matter of fact, if anything, I'd better understand and learn from others if I wanted to dig my way out of where I was at and move forward. And so it put me on that path of like, curious, how does this work? I was very lucky early on to work with some amazing, amazing people. Even before I got into tech, I I worked at the White House way back under Ronald Reagan and Bush Sr. and Colin Powell. And when you watch those people engage with others, it's just, it's inspiring, right? Like Ronald Reagan had the ability to make you feel like his best friend within seconds, And Colin Powell was built very much the same way, right? Like it was just the insight and the depth. But if you talk to them, you were just as likely to talk about barbecue as you was world policy. And so it made me feel that they were human. And if they could do something, then like other people could too. And it was just like figuring out the path to be able to get there. And so very early on, it all felt random. It felt like, oh, well, they went to a better school or maybe they were just hungry or did they have grit or work ethic or any of those things. But like what I found is is that over time, you know, it wasn't just that. It was a lot of other things that sort of contributed to making them great leaders. And so it made me want to dig deeper. And the more that you look for it and the more that you're just not trying to build up your ego or look smart, but like you're actually looking for ground truth, it's pretty readily available. I still find it amazing still to this day that somebody can do 30 years of research, spend 18 to 24 months writing it all down and editing it, and I can buy it for $12.99, right? So the ability to have access to, to some of the best thinkers in the world and be able to understand their history and all of the research that they've put into it. It's, it's there. You just have to go out and, and actually consume it. Now, applying it's a very different thing, right? Like, And it took me a while to get to the point of where I could effectively apply it. But 
I went deep because I had to, but I've always had that sense of, well, I can remember my mom when I was like 12, I was tearing apart radios so I could figure out how to run speakers to other parts of my bedroom and wire them up. And she was like, why are you taking apart a perfectly good radio? Because I needed to. And the access you had early on to have those role models and that triggers you to dive deep and also be inspired. Yeah. I think that's very lucky. I'm, I was just very fortunate to be able to have that experience. When I fast forwarded to being an engineer, like I had to learn a lot that way. My first time being an engineering manager, having access to those inspiring people did not help me. <laughs> I was horrible as an engineering manager the first time through. I think I made every classic mistake and I didn't realize that the skills that made me a really good engineer at the time did not translate to making me a very good manager at the time. And that has been a long time sort of learning uh, from others and, and figuring out cause and effect. You share one of those examples, the failures you first started as a manager. Let's go there. This is going to make me cringe just how bad I was. It was the very first company that I ever IPO'd with at that point in time. And I was a, a fairly good engineer. Think of me as being you know, a staff level tech lead, driving key projects, designing new things. But I had that desire to help projects move forward. And the CEO comes to me one day and he's like, you know, Wade, you should be a manager. I'm inspired, right? Like the CEO has recognized my greatness. I get to be a manager now. And that was it, right? There was no training. There was no conversation. There was no, here's what it means to be a manager. And you should think about these things. It was come in Monday. These people now report to you. Go get it. That sounds so familiar. Right. And come to find out like that is more of the norm than the exception. So like did all of the same things I was doing as a tech lead. Like, let's get the team together. Hey, I was in the shower this morning. I thought about this thing. Like we should de definitely factor this in. Hey, you know, Brian, you should be working on this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And fast forward, and I, I think I'm killing it, right? Like it is obvious that the CEO was profound in his wisdom and had challenged me to do the right thing. And about three months later, the first person quits. And then another person quits directly behind it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 why are you quitting, right? This is a great team. We're all doing so well. And a senior engineer, his name was Derek at the time, you know, he and I went out to lunch uh, one day and he was like, you are the worst manager I think I've ever had. And I'm like, oh, how, why? And he's like, number one, I haven't gotten any feedback you haven't coached me on like how I could be a better engineer. Matter of fact, there has been no chance for somebody to move up in the team and to take on some of the things that you used to do, right? Like you're still doing all of those things and now you're, you're still telling us what to do, but now you can control our compensation and, and you can fire us and you can do all these sorts of things. You take all the oxygen out of a room, right? Like we are just workers for you, so to speak. And he had some other really, really not so nice things to say. And every one of them was just so on point, right? Like every single one of them was just like dead on accurate. And it's hard to unhear the truth. 
right? Like when you hear it, there's a quote out there that everybody can recognize excellence and bullshit, right? And like, in this case, right, like I could recognize the excellence in his giving me feedback. Uh, there was no bullshit in, in there. And so it, it was one of those things of like, nothing that I was doing was really about being an effective manager. Everything I was doing was just around like the continuation of what I was doing before. Since then, I mean, if, if you want to do the reverse side of that, Ben Horowitz just put out a book recently and where he was talking about what you do is who you are. And in, inside of that book, he talks about like shocking rules that create culture. And not that I have done this or anything like that, but imagine if the CEO at that point in time had taken me aside and said, hey, Wade, we're really glad that you're thinking about being an engineering manager. But like, let me tell you how I measure engineering managers and the consequence of you not being a good engineering manager because it's so critical to the organization. I measure engineering managers based on the level of output of their team, how much responsibility I can give you before output suffers, and the business impact that's generated by your team. And I'm going to go as far to say, like, your job is to win at doing that, but also increase your capacity to win behind that. If you can't figure out how to improve on all three of those dimensions, output, level of responsibility, and level of business impact, by at least 1.5x over the next 12 months, I'm going to take you out of the role. I'm going to fire you from that position. That would have been a very different conversation at that point in time because I would have understood how important it is to him to have great competent management in each one of the roles and like how big of a leverage point it is for the organization and how he wouldn't want somebody stepping into that role that couldn't figure out. And that's not like have the team work 1.5 times as much. It is how can you improve process? How can you invest in people? How can you use better technology? What about the tools that, that you can use? What about the things that you should say no to? Right? Like you can employ all of those to improve your output, your level of responsibility, and, and your impact. But it would have been a very different conversation, and I would have went looking for very different things at that point in time if we just would have had that conversation. Yeah, a lot of engineering managers, when they first get to the position, they feel at loss because what's the difference? Now I'm a manager, my title changed, and how do I measure my performance, my impact? What you just said, the ability to win as a team, as an individual, and also increase the capacity behind that, that's a very clear direction where people can optimize their effort towards. Yeah. Let me back up just to take that step forward. I've interviewed thousands of people, had thousands of people in my organizations, right? And like no one has a lock on intellect. There's a bell curve associated with it, but there's a lot to get there. And what I find is that there's just a whole group of people who, like me at that point in time, were stuck. They didn't get it. And therefore, they didn't even know if they wanted it or not. And so, you know, they absolutely could do it, but they needed to get it to decide whether they wanted it or not and whether they were actually willing to go through it. My challenge is, is as you encounter folks that are sort of in that stage, how do you help them get it? in a short period of time. And I started digging into why don't they get it already right now? And it sort of took me down a path. And it, it's really interesting in that like 
so many of the things that limit our ability to move forward, a lot of them are like biology and conditioning and behaviors, but other parts of it are just like not understanding how a company works and what they value and therefore how I can align with what great looks like. If we're talking about managers and and some of the things that we were just discussing, And how do I map what I need to grow in to what the company needs to be successful in those sort of roles? And so I I think it's interesting to sort of dig into some of those because the, the more that you understand it at some level of depth, the more that you can see how that prevents forward progress in, in some stages, unless you consciously understand it and change it. In many ways, our biology works against us, right? Like, If you haven't read up on on neuroplasticity, it's really fascinating. And it it basically says that the structure of your brain changes throughout your life, depending on how you use it. You can determine what areas become stronger and or, or weaker over time. Well, that's a really interesting thing, right? Like at birth, every neuron has an estimated 2,500 synops. By the age three, it's up to 15,000. The average adult, it's about half that number. Why? Because as you focus and go through different experiences, the things that you focus on, those synapses and neurons like wire together. And when they wire together, they fire together. And when you focus on those areas, other parts of your brain weaken. Oh, well, that's kind of interesting, right? So like you're telling me that whatever I spend a lot of time doing, right? Like that area of my brain is going to get a lot stronger. And other areas in areas that I'm not focusing on are going to weaken. That makes a lot of sense, actually, when you think about it. But it means that like, if you consciously focus on an area and getting strong in that area, it'll strengthen over time at the cost of other, some other part of your brain. So if you focus on computer programming, maybe the Nintendo part of your brain starts to suffer and go away over time. You can consciously reprogram your, your brain to do a lot of those things, which then... If you kind of take that and and think about that, right, like conditioning makes a lot more sense. If your parents are very focused in a particular area, the chances that they demonstrated, modeled, and quizzed you in that basic area is much higher. And as a result, you've probably fused together areas that support that, that basic area. As you go through school, same thing right? Like however your teachers were, we're going to reinforce certain parts of your brain, who you hung out with, right? Like if you had uh, fellow engineers and training that like really thought about computers and wanted to get together at night, guess what? That part of your brain is going to form more rapidly. If you were into sports, that part of your brain is going to wire together more rapidly. As you got into college, same thing is going to hold true. And as you get into your first job, right, like it's just going to keep reinforcing this idea that neuroplasticity is going to continue to form how your brain works and you can move forward with it. Well, you can think about other types of conditioning, like if you have some success, right, there's going to be all sorts of dopamine rushes of like somebody has recognized my greatness. And now I need to continue to invest in that thing that got me here. And so as you focus more and more on that thing that got you here, you're not going to focus on other parts that might need growth at that point in time. Get a promotion, same thing. If your title changes, right? Like now all of a sudden you feel like a lot of the things that got you there 
are the things that you need to continue to invest in moving forward. Accolades, other types of things will, will get you there, which will then start to reinforce behaviors that you're seeing. And you will start to think, this is what made me successful. And therefore, I only just need to double down on this to become even more successful moving forward. I was just going to say, Wade, as you were sharing that, I feel like you just illuminated the underlying principle of all of these really popularized sayings or quotes. Like I was thinking of, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, a product of neuroplasticity, or how you do one thing is how you do everything, a product of neuroplasticity. So I feel like I just saw the causal effects of my entire life flash before my eyes. One of my favorite quotes along those lines is you can only fight the way you practice. Same thing, right? Like if it is a well-trained thing, then in the moment that you need it, you can go back to it. Imagine if you had no training in a specific area and then were in a position of where you needed to try and get to recall. It's obviously not there. And so, so many things are along those lines of you get into your career and it's like, oh, I wish I could do X. If you haven't consciously focused on building X, wish all you want. And so then you can see very much in the same light how you build up these strengths and how there are shadow areas associated with that. And that over time, if you've had some success, you really don't want to address the shadow areas. I'd rather focus on where there's bright light and I look good in that situation. It's just painful to go in the other way. And so I, I say it a lot, but like, I think people crutch on that and retreat to competence as a result. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. So you mentioned competence and remember one of the very useful notion you brought up at an earlier event is the difference between conscious competence and unconscious competence. There's a, there are different combinations. Yep. L let's just run through that really quick. I, I, I think it's helpful to understand in this context. Let's see. Jerry, do you know how to brew beer? No. No idea. Right? So we have just moved you from being unconsciously incompetent to now very consciously incompetent. Yeah, because if you wanted to, could you? Of course, right? Like, but how would you do it? Well, let's just kind of walk through the process. Well, now that I'm consciously incompetent and I now want to prove Wade, like make, make him feel bad because I, I want to learn how to build, brew great beer. Well, okay, can you go learn about how to brew beer? Can you get to declarative knowledge? All right, so I can read a book. There's tons of podcasts out there. There's lots of videos out there. There's even uh, homebrew conventions. You can't go there right now, but like you, you could totally go there. I'll teach you how to brew, Jerry, right? Come over to my house. But like investing time with somebody who knows how to do it is a great way of getting to, ah, I get the basic concept. If I break down these starches, sugars are released, I can actually uh, then have yeast, convert sugars to alcohol, and the rest of it's around flavoring and carbonation. And like, we, we can totally get you there. 
10% of how you learn, 10% is that declarative knowledge. Does that mean you know how to brew beer? No, right? Like it means you know how to talk about how to brew beer. Well, how do you learn how to brew beer, right? We've got to do it. And so, you know, we set up some weekend and you come over and you try and do it. And like, as you get into that, those ideas haven't been put into practice and it's going to be different in reality than it was in concept. And so as you start to go through this, like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that cleaning was such a big deal and that this needed to be at this level and timing uh, of all of this was, was very important. The first time you go through it, you're going to struggle, right? Like you, you, it's just going to feel awkward because it's not something you've done before. By the third or fourth time, okay, I got it, right? Like I've still got some note cards and I'm still going through it. And then, you know, by your 10th time, it's just like, yeah, get out of my way, right? Like I got this and yeah, you know, you want my beer, come over next Saturday, you know, let's, let's have a pint or whatever the case may be. The science is, is that 70% 60 to 70% of how you learn is the practice. It's that neuroplasticity. It, it is the synapse forming. It is the practiced behavior. 20 to 30% of how you learn is who is that believable coach that can help you when you need it and give you the right feedback and help you understand how to take that declarative and turn it into practiced or procedural. Right? And so if you think about it, then you go from that unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence to declarative knowledge to I'm practicing it, I'm struggling uh, with it. And about that 20-hour mark is what the research says of practicing. You can actually be competent and okay at something. If I continue to swing through that and do it for, let's say, 10,000 hours, you're not thinking about it anymore. It's probably, you, you probably don't think about driving anymore right? Like you've got more than 10,000 hours of practice. And so it's just common nature for you to go. It's because you're unconsciously competent now. And so you've went through that full cycle. Well, if you just stop and think about that process of, oh, I have to get to declarative knowledge, I need to find a mentor and a coach. And then I need an opportunity to practice. Almost anything you want to do can be put into that process. I want to be a better speaker. I want to be a better leader. I want to be a better listener. I want to be able to validate somebody. I want to be a better engineer. I need to get better at critical reasoning. Anything that you want to do can be learned. And it's, it's a fairly straightforward process that you need to go through to be able to get there. It's, it, I mean, it's a lot of work. I'm not trying to discount it. But the actual process and structure is fairly straightforward. And also being aware of there is a dip initially, being aware of that you're not competent of doing something. Like when you pointed out, I don't know how to brew beer. That may feel bad. But the first time my director board tells me that you're a horrible manager, that hurts a lot. But that's something you have to go through. Yeah, it really does get to that point of like, I think each one of those sort of invokes a, a fight, flight, or freeze response. And the more that you can recognize that, oh, I feel uncomfortable, and you can just sit with it a minute as opposed to react to it, there's always a feedback mechanism in that. That willingness to be in the discomfort a little bit longer, you're actually going to learn so much about yourself in that moment. And if you can act on that, that's what unlocks you to, to move forward. And if I can go, it's like, oh, 
well, this isn't, uh, you know, something I've ever been taught. This isn't something that I should know instinctually. Okay, well, then it's just about how do I get started? You also mentioned some basic knowledge understanding about the company, the business, to be a effective leader, besides knowing the people management side of it. Can you share a little bit more on those as well? A lot of the time, it's kind of a weird thing that as we go through our lives, it's a very weird thing that we can only draw from our experience. Like you're one of 7 billion people. You know, we're one of, I don't know how many species on this earth and how many planets are in this solar system and et cetera. So like in the, in the grand scheme of things, we have this tiny understanding of the entirety of the world. And yet that is what we can act on. And so there's a whole lot of we project onto other things that our worldview must be the accurate thing that's here instead of trying to understand what it really is and sort of fill in those memory banks for yourself. And I think around the company is one of those things. I think that a lot of people sort of vilify the company that they work at, right? It's like, uh, my company's evil and it's working against me as opposed to like trying to truly understand what companies do. If you can get into it, like most companies are, are somewhat predictable. They're about value creation, right? Like they are trying to do something for a customer base that creates value that people are willing to pay them for. And almost all of them have a mission, a vision, a strategy, and they have competitors that are trying to take their market share away from them. And so they need to be aggressive in like creating competitive differentiation in their market. Otherwise, it's very likely that that company could go away. And so, right, there's a company that's trying to get something done. And, and based on, you know, the stage of company, there's going to be different characteristics around that company of where they're at and where they're trying to get to product market fit or growth and scale or, or whatever those things. And the more that you can understand the differences between companies at different stages, you can understand the sort of needs that they're going to have and like what's going to be important for them. If you came from Google, which, which is a great company, and went to this startup, the expectation of the things that you saw at Google being real at this startup are pretty ill-formed, right? Like the startup that's trying to get to product market fit probably doesn't have the infrastructure um, or the marketing cloud, and they're going to have to like struggle for each and every deal. If you went in there thinking like this company is just like dumb and stupid because they're not doing it the Google way, right? Like you have to understand the context of where they're at and where they're trying to get to. If you can do that, then you can start to understand other things about the company. You know, there's always this gap between where the company's at and where they're trying to get to. And so there's things that are missing for them to be successfully on the other side of that gap. They need leaders. They need people who can help lift where they stand and, and like push things forward. Uh, and they need other people who can bring other people with them and mentor and coach people. And like the CEO can't do every position in the company and he wants people to join him. 
It's not like he wants to actively manage everyone in that organization. The CEO, she is going to want to attract the best people that can see the business for what it is and will demonstrate great business judgment to help it get where it needs to be. And so inside of that, the executive staff is always trying to find employees, to put them in roles that have that high output, high levels of responsibility, high levels of business impact that feel aligned with the company so that they will demonstrate great business judgment and that has high potential to take on ever-expanding roles inside of the company. If you can kind of understand that, then right, like the company is a living, breathing thing that's like trying to grow and trying to get somewhere. So if you, as an employee, can understand a lot of those things, it's like, okay, it's not against me. I need to understand where it's at, and then I can figure out how my skills and my strengths map into that, as well as where they have needs, how I could grow in a way that allows me to contribute to that company, but also helps my career move forward as well, right? Like I need to find highly leveraged, highly portable areas of growth that will help the company move forward, but also help my career move forward. And then all of a sudden, there's this weird thing that happens, right? It's not me against the machine, the company. It can be an and relationship as opposed to an or relationship. So a lot of times, it's like I find employees that see it as a black box, as opposed to understanding that there are needs and strengths that map to those needs like can be very beneficial for both the company as well as the employee. And this is the basis of growth. And if you can do this, then of course, you're going to take on ever increasing growing responsibility inside of a company as well. So it works when you can see the company for what it is and what they value. And you can figure out like how that is also leveraged in your own career as well. I am looking back at my own experience of frustrated team members who are assessing their company from, you know, the black box perspective where they have a misaligned understanding of what they think the company is about. And just in understanding the needs of the company and how you fit within that and then projecting and mapping how you can contribute to that, seems like it opens up a lot of different pathways for people to grow and to then align their growth with the growth of the company and also removes and alleviates a lot of the frustration inherent with that. Yeah, I, I mean, I've had so many conversations with that frustrated employee that is really, I've had a lot of experience up to this point, and I've had some success and right, like, why are you not just looking at my success and going, this is a great employee? Well, if you had a lot of success at a company that had different needs, that's going to be very different than the current company and what we need. Right. And so it's not that the company can map onto your your history. It's like the strengths that you have and the needs that the company has, how can those things come together? Unfortunately, it has to be where that fit exists in between your skills and the company needs. And if you can always be on that side of looking for the company needs and figuring out how to run towards them, there's so much benefit in doing that. And you also expand a little bit into the anthropology perspective of a company, especially for people that are joining a new organization, having that perspective can be really helpful. Yeah, there's a, a very interesting thing, right? Like oftentimes you look at a company and you think about it as being 
static and in a point in time, right? And the, and the truth is, is like, if you're a successful company, the company is growing and it's changing. And the thing that got you to a certain level is not the thing that's going to take you to the next level. And so you have to be looking at what's the stage of the company and like, how is it best going to be organized for the goal or the challenge that's directly in front of it? For example, if you're getting to product market fit, you are going to go out and try and discover customers and figure out like how to build something that they're going to want to buy. And then you're going to want to find another customer that will buy the same thing that you just built. And if you're somewhat successful and you figure out how to get multiple customers buying the same thing, well, then all of a sudden it shifts from, uh, we just need to figure out how to get the next feature to, okay, how do we reduce the cost of operating of this thing that we just built? How do we get it to grow? How do we get it to scale? How do we take and make it where we get closer and closer to profitability? Well, as you sort of look at that, the needs that the organization has is going to change, right? We're, we're at one point, we wanted cowboys that could just like develop the next new feature. Now, all of a sudden, we need to look at it and say like, no, 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 we need stability in certain parts of our organization. And so you have to look at the, the organization and, and work backwards from what do we want to be true two years from now? What's the design of the machine that would have the highest probability of being able to produce that result that we want? What's the organizational structure need to look like? What do the leaders need to look like? What do the team members need to look like? What are the right processes, the right architecture, the right technology, the right communication styles? Like how do we reduce cognitive load for teams doing X and move that down to platforms, the separation of concerns and responsibilities? If you don't look at it through that anthropological lens of like, how is the system going to mature and grow, then you, it will start to feel like, ah, this isn't the company that I joined. It, it's something way different. And you're right, right? That's not a bad thing. It is understanding what they need and like why they're going through that. And if you can look at it through that anthropology lens, you can actually start to predict what's next and you can start to move towards that because. In most companies, if you can continue to grow, it means that you can provide more value to your end customers and to all the employees that work there as well. There are cases where people are not to project what's going to happen in the future, but trying to understand what happened in the past as a way to solve a problem we have right now. Yeah. I think that the more that you can understand and dig into issues or, or challenges that you've had and, you know, go through the five whys and try and make sure that you understand causally what created the issue that you're dealing with, then you can figure out how to actually work around it or remove it from future patterns that are similar. And so most engineering organizations, if you have an outage, you're going to go through and look at what caused it and go through the five whys and how did we communicate and what should have been different and how could we have prevented this and work it in. You kind of want to replicate that in a lot of different ways. Like if the team structure would have been different, if the communication paths would have been different, if we had had the right seam in place between different teams and organizations, like would it have prevented this communication snafu? How could we have incented the right behavior in the first place? 
So I, I think that sort of digging into incidents and occurrences of things help you better understand and then help you figure out how to diagnose what would be a, a better answer for moving forward. I think that leads back to what you mentioned very early on. It's about seeking truth. There was an old quote of like, it's amazing what you can do if you don't need to get credit. Well, I think that's very true in that if you can just focus on like what needs to be true and getting to ground truth, and it might be your mistake, that that's okay, right? Like just constantly focus on what is blocking us from moving forward and getting to the core of it and finding a better answer. The entire organization is better off in the long term as a result. Here are some of our top takeaways from our conversation with Wade Chambers. How do you measure success in engineering leadership? This conversation radically changes any engineering leader's focus when they're taking on a new role. Here's the conversation framework that Wade uses and his criteria for success in engineering leadership. We're really glad that you're thinking about being an engineering manager. Your role is critical to the organization. Here's how I measure the success of an engineering manager and the consequences. I measure success based on the output of your team, how much responsibility I can give you before output suffers, and the business impact generated by your team. Your job is to win at doing that, but also to increase your capacity to win. You need to figure out how to improve on all three of the dimensions of output, level of responsibility, and business impact by at least 1.5x over the next 12 months. That's not having the team work 1.5 times as much. It's about how you improve process, how you invest in people, how you use better tools and technology, and even how you say no. Engineering leaders will better understand how important it is to be a great, competent manager, how high of a leverage point they are, and how critical they are to the organization. In conscious growth, neuroplasticity is the foundation, but it's also how we can get stuck. The structure of your brain changes throughout your life. How you use it determines what areas become stronger or weaker. Simply put, what you repeatedly focus on grows stronger, and what you don't weakens. Meaning, you can reprogram and condition your brain. This is conscious growth. However, that also means if you wish you could do X and haven't consciously focused on it, you won't be able to do it. Where we get stuck is we often focus on the things that made us successful and got us to where we're at, but we avoid the pain of learning something new that will get us to where we need to be. As Wade says, we retreat to competence, avoiding growth that could launch us to the next level. This leaves us stuck. So how do you get unstuck? By applying the framework for conscious growth. There are four steps to learning anything. Unconscious incompetence, where you don't know what you don't know. Conscious incompetence, where you're now aware you don't know. Conscious competence, where you can now do the thing with attention or focus. And unconscious competence, where you can now do it without thinking. This is the level of mastery. When you become consciously incompetent, you experience an initial dip. You feel bad. It's important to be aware of that and to accept that it's part of the growth curve. Declarative knowledge helps you move from conscious incompetence to being consciously competent. And you do this by reading books, blogs, watching videos, listening to podcasts. But declarative knowledge like this is only 10% of learning. 60 to 70% of how you learn is practice. 
cue neuroplasticity, what you focus on grows stronger. 20 to 30% of learning is having a coach to help take that declarative knowledge and turn it into practice. 20 hours of practice gets you to competence. Almost anything you want to learn can be put through this process of declarative knowledge, find a coach, and then practice. How do you then align your growth to both impact your company and move your career forward? Most people vilify companies instead of trying to understand them. Companies fundamentally are about value creation. Identify the gap between where the company is currently at and where they're trying to get to. Find and consciously develop highly leveraged, highly portable areas of growth that both impact the company's needs and gaps and moves your career forward. To anticipate and predict what's next for the company, work backwards and ask, where does the company need to go two years from now? What needs to be true to get there? What's the design of the quote-unquote machine that has the highest probability of being right? How is the system going to mature and grow? These questions will help reveal the different needs and gaps that exist in your company so that you can consciously align your career growth with them. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.